Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers, and we promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hello, Dr. Vera. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing well, Christian. How are you? Good. It's been raining the past weekend here in New York yeah. City. And it's a Monday. And I just came from work. So it's like a very chill day. And I've been looking forward to our live stream for a while. We've been planning this for, I think, even before the summer, right? I think even springtime, yeah. if not mistaken, because we were talking about the pediatric vaccines. And then yep, we rerouted yep. a little bit to a topic that is actually very, very dear to me. And I know it's very dear to you. Thank you for being here. And if you could first please introduce yourself to everybody. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan of the oh. podcast. I've like, listened to yeah. so many episodes. Thank and you, I'm so excited to really get into this conversation today. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Arunima or Dr. Bera, as I'm known in the hospital. I'm board certified pediatric intensivist. And currently I'm working as essentially, you know, the inpatient pediatric specialist for my hospital that I work in, in a medically underserved area in Central California. So I do a little bit of everything. I do a little bit of critical care, inpatient medicine, newborn nursery where, you know, the healthy newborns are born, take consults in the ER. It's a nice mixed bag of a lot of different things. And yeah, it's a big privilege to be able to, you know, do the stuff that we've trained so long to do. I, I absolutely yeah. love it. I love it. Yeah, so much respect because, oh my gosh, sometimes I can't deal with adults and I can't imagine more like children from... So basically, pediatrics, like everything from like straight out of, you know, the room and into however many years old. Is it 21 years old or 18 years yes. old? 21 years old. Yeah. yeah. In the U.S., it's 0 to 21. Zero to We've 20. got it all. There we go. Yeah. And I always laugh at it because I had a cardiac ablation back when I was, I would want to say like 18 or 19. And then oh, I was okay. so scared that. Am I, am I going to be in the pediatrics unit or is, am I going to be in the adult unit? And I was like, okay, I still get the, I still get the cartoon band-aids because it was still pediatrics. But anyways, I, I love nice. it. I mean, you know, becoming a physician, I can't imagine is such a long, long road. And mm-hmm. like what you were saying is like all the years that you have spent to do what you've been training to do, right? If you could just mm-hmm. give everyone a glimpse of your journey leading up to where you are now as an attending, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, it is a long drawn journey and you will feel it in your mind and in your body, <laughs> but it's well worth it. So um, I actually started my pre-med and medical school journey in Qatar 
which is where I grew up in, or or Qatar, that's the right way to pronounce it. But yeah, essentially, I grew up there. I went to high school there, and I went to um, Wild Cornell Medical College in Qatar, which mm-hmm. is the sister campus of Wild Cornell in New York. So it was really exciting to be able to be a part of an Ivy League school, but essentially at home. And at that time, the school had already been you know, up and running for many years. And a lot of my friends in my community had, you know, been students there and they had amazing feedback about the school. So that's where I started. And then the nice thing about the medical school program is that a good chunk of our curriculum involves doing rotations at New York Presbyterian in New York City. So we really kind of got the best of both worlds in that we got to do a lot of our foundational training back home with, you know, American professors and Cornell professors. And then we also got to bring all of what we had learned to you know, the states where eventually most of us ended up matching into various, you know, residency specialties. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, I still wanted to stay on the East Coast. And so I matched at Buffalo and University of Buffalo, did my pediatric residency there. And it was really great. You know, it was it was a tough program. It was in a standalone children's hospital. But, you know, you you want training to respectfully kick mm-hmm. your butt. Right? Yeah. Because that's when you're you're learning. That's when you want to really like see how much you're capable of. That's where I did my residency training, and it was amazing. I learned so much. And during those months of rotations that you know you get to do as a resident, you get to work in all these different departments. And when I got to the pediatric ICU, it just blew me away in terms of the sort of intersection of pediatric physiology, right, at sort of the extreme because you're seeing the sickest of the sickest kids in the ICU. So getting to experience that and then also really getting to experience teamwork. And I just loved, you know, just watching that and getting to be a part of that. And I was like, you know what, I want to study critical care. So then that made me move to the West Coast and I did my critical care fellowship at UCLA, which was also a very, you know, intense and formative experience uh, really for my career. But uh, yeah, just got to see so much, got to learn so much. And I love living in California, you know, on, on the West Coast. <laughs> I'm jealous. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's such now, a... I'm just saying I do wish we, get, we got a little bit more rain because sometimes it's a little dry (laughs) but i I can't complain (laughs) yeah each time i visit the west coast it like rains and they're like you're bringing the northeast energy (laughs) yeah all the way two thousand miles away right i mean you know yeah that being said i mean this is an amazing experience you know going to an ivy league school even though you're outside the united states Mm -hmm. and then i can't imagine how grueling all of those residency and fellowship hours of training were though we know why they need to be as grueling as long as they should be, right? But I just want to know what were your inspirations behind entering medicine in the first place and tagging that along to pediatrics? Why pediatrics? Was there a family member or a friend, personal experience within medicine and then specifically in pediatrics and then pediatrics ICU fellowship? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'll I'll be honest, I wasn't really one of those kids who knew when she was eight years old that she wanted to be a doctor. You know, I really wasn't one of those people. In fact, when it came to like choosing a college major and choosing, you know, what I wanted to do, I really had to think a lot about it in high school. 
because, you know, I was a reasonably good student, you know, I, I had a lot of interests, which can be both a boon and a tricky thing, yeah. right? Because you're trying to like figure it out. But I think at the end of the day, when I just reflect back all these years, I think it was like a gut feeling that I would, you know, I would really enjoy working with people and sort of building community in the context of healthcare with my interest in biology and like the human sciences. So honestly, that's really what I took with me. And then I just sort of had faith in the process. And it's kind of easier said than done now because I love what I do. But I think what was really important for me to have at that time, and I'm, I'm just so grateful to have very supportive parents in that even after I got into pre-med and then after completing pre-med, even after getting into medical school, they were always sort of asking me, you know, are you sure you want to get into this? Like, if you want to switch, we can do that. Like, it's fine. We'll, you know, figure something else out. And that, you know, just gave me a little bit of reassurance that I'm not doing this for anyone else, but for yeah. myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's really what sort of kickstarted my journey and interest in medicine and then you know in in medical school in the latter part you do a lot of rotations and that's a great opportunity for you to figure out what subspecialty you want to go into right or first with specialty and so I have a younger sibling mm. my sister is about 14 years younger than me mm. and you know I watched her grow up in front of me right mm. and like seeing babies and toddlers and kids grow up is not only such a fun process but for me it was just really fascinating to see her like achieve her milestones yeah. and be so yeah. resilient when yeah. you know she's trying to learn a skill or like a language and such and I didn't really realize at that time how important growing through that and living through that would be when it came to deciding a specialty. Because honestly, when I started my pediatrics rotation, it was like an instant fit, mm. you know, for me, where first of all, I love having patients that are children and babies and teenagers a lot more than adult patients. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, <laughs> I find that uh, a yeah. lot more enjoyable yeah. just in general. But yeah, uh, you know, that was kind of my jumping off point to then be like, oh, like pediatric physiology is actually very unique and it's very distinct from adult physiology. You know, like children are not just little adults yeah. and you have to think about them very differently, yeah. you know, just when it comes to how their organ systems work, you know, how pharmacology works, how the practice of recovery works, all of that. So, yeah, so those were kind of the factors that got me into pediatrics. And then, you know, like I mentioned earlier, when I got to the pediatric ICU, just seeing the camaraderie amongst, you know, different people in the team, people offering their expertise, you know, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, you know, the other house staff, and then the physician kind of tying everything together in a situation that can be, you know, pretty intense, right, where you're dealing with very, very sick children, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, survival or not, and you're dealing with their family. It was just an incredible opportunity for me to see how we can apply our skills and not just our knowledge, but like our practical skills, our procedural skills mm -hmm. and how we're able to also bring like the team together. Yeah. So definitely. yeah, that's, that's yeah. why I wanted to get into it. That yeah. all said, and like you were saying how, you know, you are basically an international medical graduate, mm -hmm. right? And I think within the pre-medical and medical community, we know of the struggles that IMGs have, you know, when it comes to residents yeah. matching the United States or 
I mean, we talked about this many months ago is maybe some attitudes and impressions that people may have, especially mm-hmm. uh, and things I guess you would notice more um, or other co-residents possibly when it comes to IMGs. Given through all of that, I guess the struggles that may have derived from being an international foreign graduate and an immigrant, right, as myself, mm-hmm. and just the nature of medicine itself, the studies and the trainings of so long, so arduous, so many sacrifices entailed. I mean, here in the United States, I don't know how it is in different countries, but the financial burden that medical education Ooh, has yeah. here. Do you have any regrets through all of it mm-hmm. all now that you are and attending and have you know gone through all of the primordial aspects of the medical journey? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. You know, it's absolutely something that I have thought about, you know, many times, not just now that I'm an attending, but at mm-hmm. multiple points in, in the journey, because like you mentioned, there's just such a, it's so long, it's arduous, you're taking prime years of your life, you know, going through it. <laughs> and on top of that, there is the financial debt, but then mm-hmm. there's also an emotional cost to mm-hmm. doing everything, right? Yeah. Because many times you are having to sacrifice so much at, at the expense of your own physical and mental well-being, right? We know that like sleep deprivation is is such a big problem for mm-hmm. students and trainees and even beyond that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'll, I'll be very real. There were moments when I was very burnt out. There were moments when I questioned whether it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm the only one, you know, I think it's pretty yeah. natural for a lot of people to feel that again, because when you're working six days out of the week, right, you have barely any time for yourself. You're working like 80 plus hours, you're barely sleeping. You're missing out on family events, etc. That's a lot to sort of let go. But having said that, you know, I'm I'm just so extremely grateful that through all these years, I've had such an incredible support system, you know, comprising of my mentors, my friends, my peers, my family members. It is so incredibly helpful to have other people go through the same, including IMGs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone in my class that I graduated with were international medical graduates, and it was so important to have the support of people who knew exactly you know what you were going through right with the added factor of my ability to stay and work in the U.S. is tied to my immigration status which is tied to my employment status right so the stakes are higher so having said that I'm, I'm just so lucky to have that kind of support system that has really helped me survive through all these stages and at this point again I feel so lucky that Overall, in this tipping scale, you know, the scale where I am happy and I feel blessed and I feel grateful to be able to do my job far, far outweighs any of those feelings of maybe a little bit of regret or, you know, even burnout or just feeling like it has cost me greatly to be able to do this. It's no longer October, but let me tell you a horror story. I was working bedside as a nurse. 12-hour shifts, 12,000 to 15,000 steps per night, always exposed to dripping blood, pee, and other fluids. And guess what? I was wearing skateboarding shoes for almost a year. Because my feet were killing me, I switched to more comfortable sneakers but had to go through three pairs because I would find new stains after shifts. And over time, as the pandemic came, I was too exhausted to think about my feet or even changing my footwear. 
I was then introduced to Clove, and I no longer had to do the thinking. To support the steps of those who dedicate their lives to caring for others, Clove collaborated with healthcare professionals and innovative designers to create a shoe that prioritizes the needs of those in the front line. These are sneakers designed for healthcare. They already did the thinking. Easy to clean and fluid repellent, I no longer have to worry about those red streaks or pea-soaked socks since I use the same wipes at work to remove every stain. Just this summer, one of my patients unexpectedly bled from the radial artery access site and made a pool in my brilliant whites on the floor. A few swipes with the purple wipes, all clean and with no damage. Plus being squeak-free, I no longer have to worry about waking up a sleeping patient. Layered with comfort, sore toes are no longer my problem since the shoes are now upgraded with double the cushioning, 50% more arch support, and a perfect heel pad. On top of this, the Grippius outsole also allows for a fluid channel technology while maintaining super secure footing. And yes, it's 100% cruelty-free and vegan. I love all of my clove shoes and I hope that you can get ready to also step into your perfect pair. Use code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit goclove.com slash friends for 15% off your first pair of clove shoes at checkout. I am no stranger to seeing patients that can't get the care they need because they can't afford it. Even if they get a medical recommendation that will help them, oftentimes, medication costs are so high it's totally out of reach, or they would have to choose between feeding their family or paying rent in order to get the medication, so people have to go without. After living through a pandemic, on some level, we all know the healthcare system in the United States is broken. That is why I am happy to see that mission-driven businesses are now taking an interest in the problem because it's not getting solved fast enough. Better Remedies is one of those companies doing something to really meaningfully help people with medical expenses, in particular, getting their medications. Better makes over-the-counter medication, think pain, gas, cough and flu, sleep, all the essentials for your medicine cabinet. For every box of Better Remedies sold, they cover the cost of someone's life-saving medication for a month. And this is someone who would otherwise have to choose between food, rent, gas to get to work, or otherwise caring for themselves or their family. It is such an easy switch to make. You get the same great relief you need for 10% less than other big name brands, and someone who doesn't have the access to their meds will get the help they need. In general, it's good to know the active ingredient you need for your symptoms rather than just buying a big name brand. It'll save you money, and because active ingredients are FDA regulated, you'll still be getting the results you need. Plus, if you buy from Better, you are also helping someone else in a big way too. It's putting your headaches, farts, and insomnia to work. And that's something we can all feel better about. I've been buying my Better Remedies products at Walmart at any time I need to stock up. And you can do the same. Everything is priced about 10% less than the big brands, works just as well, and makes an impact on something that is really important and that I am personally very passionate about. Make the switch next time you need relief. You'll feel better and be doing some good. It radiates from your posts and just when you talk about your work, your gratefulness for taking care of the communities that you do take care of that you were talking about mm -hmm. where, you know, the underserved populations there in California. October is also Health Literacy Month and, you know, one of those many awareness months. And I think when people think of just health in itself, we think, you know, very individualistic, right? Like I should go mm -hmm. to the doctor, I should get my visits, I should do this, I should get my annual screening and uh, i guess it's for me and for you and for many as well it's I, what it seems like that comes out of a place of privilege right that we can think of being on top of our screenings and of yeah. our follow-ups like oh i have pain 
Let me go to my doctor. Let me make an appointment. Oh, I am having urgent chest pain. Oh, let me go to the nearest emergency room. Oh, I need medication. Let me go to my doctor. Let me let me get a refill in the pharmacy. But that concept, well, that reality is a foreign concept to many communities and populations across the United States and yeah. for sure across the nation. But we'll talk specifically, of course, about the communities that we have here where we both work. You know, um, mm-hmm. just a preview. During my third year of nursing school, I did a, a volunteer event with Will Cornell called Heart to Heart. And we went to an uninsured and underserved community here in Brooklyn, New York, with the church. And we saw so many people. And I, I won't forget this um, one woman who had high blood pressure, a very elevated um, blood pressure. And I said, Oh, um, when was the last time that you saw your physician to, you know, for a blood pressure screening? She said, well, it's probably been about 15 years. And she wasn't even aware of what the parameters of um, Mm. blood pressure would be. And and that's when I was, you know, I could say that I grew up very privileged because I never thought of that concept for anybody that one wouldn't have the chance to have seen their physician <laughs> for many years like you know fear of cost well also the fact that they do not know what they're looking for what they need help for right and yes. i think that is the breadth of your work you know as someone as a physician who's working in underserved populations i want to know from your perspective as the attending and as the one who works this is your bread and butter what does underserved mean to you right mm-hmm. and specifically how does that definition mean in your expertise in pediatrics yeah yeah and and thanks for sharing that i mean so many people have had that experience especially here in the us right of not having that sort of primary care yeah so for me you know now this is my third year working in a medically underserved area and the more i have worked and the more i have like interacted with the people in my community I've realized that essentially the difference between a well-served area, right, or an area with resources and an underserved area really at its core is how many barriers do you have in access to healthcare? How many barriers do you have in management of your health? Right. So some of those barriers and really there's a whole term for it's it's social determinants of health. Right. Mm -hmm. So some of those most fundamental factors are what is your housing situation like? Right. What is your food security situation? Right. What level of education and not just education in the Mm -hmm. traditional sense, just like what kind of guidance do you have in your community? Do you have it accessible in different languages and different cultural you know, context? Because when you don't have that, that is a very sure shot way of alienating whole groups of people, mm-hmm. right? So that at its very simplest way to for us to like conceptualize what a medically underserved area is really that, that the more barriers you have to accessing, you know, quality healthcare, really the more underserved an area is at risk to be, right? And this is not just a zip code or a remote or a rural place. It could be areas within Brooklyn, like you mentioned. This could be communities within LA, right? Or even within bigger cities, because it all really just depends on how have we designed our healthcare systems to be able to benefit as many people as possible, mm-hmm. right? And so 
in the area that I live in, you know, the the average literacy level is only really at like fourth or fifth grade. That's mm-hmm. sort of the statistic mm-hmm. that I had, you know, read about. Mm-hmm. But at the more sort of practical level, I mean, what does that really mean? That essentially means that not everyone may have a primary care physician or not everyone may really have the awareness or know-how of mm-hmm. when and for what to go to their primary mm-hmm. care doctor, right? Versus just coming into the ER or coming into, you know, an urgent care. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really what I have found it to be. And I've also found it because, you know, pediatrics is so much more than just caring for the child. It's really caring for the family. And so if you have these barriers that affect the family, it's going to affect the child as well, right? And so what I found is that when the family or when the adults have certain barriers, you know, if they have poverty or if they have housing security, those things will potentially affect, you know, the child's access to healthcare, also the quality of their healthcare. Mm -hmm. And we know that healthy children make healthy adults. And so when you're not able to remove those barriers, then you can sort of risk entire generations of people growing up, you know, deprived of some very fundamental resources. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we always hear of the term like failure to thrive, failure to this, right? And many times it's also rooted in the very primordial years of life, right? Like how Mm -hmm. is mission going? How is the time that a child spends with their parents, especially the mom, but yep. the mom needs to work, you know, because they're living from paycheck to paycheck. You know, mm-hmm. those kind of aspects are things, I guess, that we, well, I guess for the general population, doesn't really appreciate in their mind, right? Because we don't go yeah. through it. And like right. those, that's a reality for them, right? I, I read in an interview once where they said that even though poverty may be an extreme form also of, underserved areas but they said that poverty is not a concept it's a reality for many right and like you were also talking about how these different barriers these different factors can definitely lead to disparities in access to care or you know failure to thrive and failure to grow and and unhealthy entrance to adulthood because of you know how they are as, as children what do you think are the biggest results of these barriers mm-hmm. medical-wise, specifically for children. And I guess we can tie on along the parents as well or the family or the mm-hmm. guardian because oh, what I notice in pediatrics is that it's a compact thing, right? The patient is the children and the guardians and whoever's taking care of them. What have you seen personally in your specific center that this low literacy rate or poverty or poor housing conditions, what have you seen in these children specifically? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's just such an important conversation to have, right? So I'll, I'll give you this sort of case example, and it's actually a, a sort of public health crisis. I mean, I know we have lots of crises yeah, going on, yeah, but it's yeah. something that, you know, us as pediatricians are seeing a lot of. So yeah. you know how adults, adults have syphilis, um, you know, syphilis is one of the STIs. And so when you have a woman who has syphilis and she hasn't been treated for it either adequately or at all, Mm-hmm. And then she goes on to become pregnant. She mm-hmm. actually then carries a very real risk of transmitting the, you know, syphilis down to the neonate, down to the fetus. Mm-hmm. And so then the baby can be born with something called congenital syphilis. Mm-hmm. And congenital syphilis is actually 
something that we are seeing, the rates are increasing like mm -hmm. dramatically. Mm -hmm. So between 2012 and 2022, the CDC looked at, you know, the annual rates in the US mm -hmm. and it's been steadily going up. And actually during the pandemic, because so many people's services were disrupted, the rates actually really skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very worrying because congenital syphilis can have really serious side effects. You know, the baby can be born premature, stillbirth, um, you know, actually used to be a huge um, risk factor before. They can also have deformities in their organs. So you can have liver damage, you can have brain damage. So neurosyphilis is a very serious adverse effect. You can have blindness, you can have deformities in your bones and etc. So the reason why I'm mentioning this example is because it's, it's a demonstration of when a lot of these women that, you know, come into the hospital and they are in labor and they're about to, you know, give birth. Some of them may not even have known that they had syphilis during pregnancy that they needed to get treated, or some of them get lost to follow up because, mm -hmm. you know, for those pregnant women, it's a series of three shots that you have to take. And I, I believe it's spaced out per week. So a lot of times they may just not take all of them, right? So it's kind of a, that's a lapse in, in the management. And then some of them, again, this is just my anecdotal experience, but, you know, this is something that when you have someone who has all of these, you know, incomplete details in their care, some of them don't have the most stable, you know, home environment, mm -hmm. right? Some of them have partners who may not even have told them that they had syphilis and thus mm -hmm. they needed to get treated for it. So all of these are the way that something that could have been preventable, right? Something that could have been avoidable is now affecting the newborn. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're able to treat, we, we start treating the newborn as soon as they're born, like essentially mm -hmm. on day zero, day one of life, you know, we do all our investigative studies, we mm -hmm. check for any signs of organ damage in the newborn, you know, pretty early, and mm -hmm. then we have to start them on penicillin. But it's it's just one of those things where, you know, there could have been a lot that could have been done, you know, on the front end. That could have prevented these cases in the first place, mm -hmm. because the morbidity of congenital syphilis can be pretty great if yeah. it's not monitored and taken care of, you know, in the adequate way. So that's been sort of one case. And I mean, we've seen so much of it just in our community. So I can imagine in the rest of California and in the rest of the U.S., it must be, you know, pretty similar. You know, many other things, too, like we have mothers come in with sort of a history or current substance use and mm -hmm. they have no prenatal care. Epidemic, yeah. Right. And substance use is also is actually a public health crisis, not only in adults, but actually in teenagers mm -hmm. now, too, mm -hmm. right? because of so much of adulterated substances out there. And so those things will directly affect babies. I mean, I have babies with like heart rates in the 200s because their body is metabolizing, you know, whatever methamphetamines or cocaine or other substances that the mother may have gone into. And, and I would also like to take this opportunity to talk about the fact that substance use is a symptom of a much larger problem, mm. yes. right? Yes. So as a healthcare yeah. team, the last thing we want to do is villainize or blame Think these mothers, way. right? Or, or sort of cast any kind of yeah. judgment because mm -hmm. it is a symptom of a much larger issue, you know, be that, again, an unstable home environment. Some of their partners are drug dealers themselves, right? Or, you know, other issues. Homelessness is also a very big, other big sort of comorbid factor almost. Yeah. 
But at the end of the day, it you know it does take its effect on the newborn, and that is heartbreaking yeah. to witness, right? Because um, things like neonatal abstinence syndrome, which mm-hmm. is when you know moms can have opioid use, that is also something that can be potentially serious in yeah. in babies. Yeah, those those yeah. are some very you know sort of yeah. striking examples. Yeah, definitely. I had NICU rotations during nursing school too, and I surprised by the amount of you know abstinent babies you know who are the byproducts of all the substance yeah. abuse from the parents right and like you were saying doc that most of these women do not know most of these parents mm-hmm. do not know and i think that's a pressing issue in public health is the and even in health literacy and in this concept in, in, in this topic of the underserved right is the lack of awareness and information and education and i think that is a huge, huge job of the physician and the whole healthcare team, right? And right. I wanted to tag that along to a bigger question of, you know, this is your everyday, this is your bread and butter. In a community and in communities and populations where the disparity is so huge and the mm-hmm. inequity relative to the rest of the country when it comes to healthcare access and healthcare assistance and urgency and receiving immediate care, right? Mm. It's so huge and sometimes impossible to get, especially in rural territories where mm. the nearest doctor is like 10, how many miles away, right? What is yeah. your role as a physician in this, you know, this grave situations of lack of healthcare access when you are the yeah. only access? What is your position in all of this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it can be, it can feel very frustrating as, you know, an individual physician for us to kind of see, you know, these things and realize that a lot of it could have been prevented and avoidable. But, mm-hmm. but you know, this is the grand reality for some. And, you know, and, and also there are also many cases where things have been done well. So there is relief in that too. So, you know, since I am a physician in the inpatient setting, there is so much I can do on my end when the patient comes in. And honestly, the, the best situation would be for them to not come in at all, right? So, so anytime when, when I discharge my <laughs> whenever I discharge my patients, I'm always telling them, you know, hey, as much as I like you, I don't want to see you yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> right? Especially in the ICU, right? <laughs> Especially in the ICU. Um, but because I've realized that, you know, take an example of like a subspecialty service, like, you know, right now respiratory season is in full swing and there are many, many kids coming in with asthma, either asthma symptoms for the first time or many other times, and they may not have access to like a pulmonologist or an allergist, Mm -hmm. like very readily. Right. Mm -hmm. So some of that, you know, initial education and guidance we actually start from the inpatient floor itself or even sometimes from the er because we realize that you know they may not get an appointment to even their like pediatrician or a pulmonologist as easily urgent care sorry right right exactly so um you know whether or not that's just like teaching basic things about how different medications work or just explaining to parents that, okay, if your child is experiencing these symptoms very frequently, then that means that their asthma is not under good control and you really need to get them seen by, you know, by a specialist. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those conversations I will try to have, you know, within the scope of time that I do with the family, depending, you know, if it's a teenager, sometimes I will touch upon, you know, mental health or Mm -hmm. there's, Lives because all of that ties yeah. into yeah. 
you know, yeah. what they're going through, yeah. right? So that's what I try to do on an individual level. Yeah. Sometimes when we have, uh, you know, patients discharged from the hospital, we will, you know, follow up with their families, you know, just making sure everything is okay and, you know, they don't need any immediate assistance. Yeah. It's it's really about collaboration. Yeah. You know, it's really about collaboration between when you have a hospital system and then you have a network of different clinics where yeah. doctors are also <laughs> doing their jobs and patient medicine is a whole other ball game, right? That yeah. is not easy. So yeah. it's all about uh, being collaborative. It's all about, you know, making sure that we know what the priorities of that community are and making sure that if there are any gaps in the care that mm-hmm. there are, how can we bridge those gaps? Because at the end of the day, we can aim for progress. And also at the same time, you know, healthcare in the US is a completely capitalistic system. I was just going to (laughs) say. Right, right. So there's really no concept of universal care. Like even with Medicaid or here, Medi-Cal, Medicare, it's not completely like guaranteed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think now collectively, a lot of us are sort of feeling the constraints of working within that system. And so things like DPC, which is that direct patient care, which yeah. is independent yeah. of depending on insurance. I would love for a model like that, honestly, to be implemented in a more remote area. Yeah. Because yeah. it means that people don't have to depend on their employer's insurance mm-hmm. or even like Medicare, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. To, to be able to get the care. Having worked as a nurse in cardiac surgery recovery and outpatient interventional cardiology, I learned that listening is a vital part of the field. But beyond listening to what patients say, it is also important to hear what they don't say. And many times, you can hear this in the stillness and quietness of the room as their chest thumps and rhythms that can range from normalcy to urgency. A person's heartbeat is not only a sign of life, but also a sign of its quality. According to the CDC, arrhythmias, or abnormal heart sounds, have an expected prevalence of about 1.5% in the general population, with atrial fibrillation being the most common. This is why it is so important that we can adequately hear and detect heart and even lung sounds that may be detrimental to human life. ECHO provides smart digital stethoscopes, such as the 3M Letman Core Digital Stethoscope, that help you check for signs of heart and lung disease in seconds during physical exams with unprecedented enhanced stethoscope sound and automated detection. This is all through a quick pairing with your mobile device. This is made possible by features such as having up to 40 times amplification, active noise cancellation, wireless listening, auto-triggered heart murmur and atrial fibrillation detection, and real-time visualization of sound and ECG that you can share as a consult with a trusted colleague or specialist. Every patient encounter deserves exceptional care. Hear clearly and care confidently with ECHO. The virtual space is flooded with so many different brands, resources, and gears made for healthcare workers from all disciplines. From scrubs to pins and even compression talks, it can truly get overwhelming trying to find the best product fit for you. Links to these items can get lost, and the list can get so long that you forget what you actually needed to purchase for your next work shift. This is why I am so grateful to partner with Lumify, the community marketplace for healthcare workers all in one app. Finding the brands you love, discovering new tools, and accessing your resources and communities shouldn't be difficult. Instead of going to 50 different websites to access what you need, you can find it all on Lumify, where over 200 brands, organizations, and resources are united with one goal, to support healthcare workers. 
As a nurse-founded company, Lumify believes that all healthcare professionals deserve a trusting and supportive community of their peers. In Lumify, you can easily communicate with your peers to trade advice, share product recommendations, and discuss what resources are best to support you. You can even earn Lumify points on every purchase you complete, which you can save for product discounts. Whether it's mental health resources, or fluid-resistant shoes, hi Chloe, or stethoscopes, hi Echo, or podcast, welcome to France of France, Lumify is trusted by over 75,000 healthcare professionals at the bedside and beyond, including myself. Enter this new healthcare ecosystem where you can get 10% off using the code LUMIFYFRANZ, that's L-U-M-I-F-Y-F-R-A-N-Z, at LUMIFYCARE.com or the Lumify app available for download on iOS devices. It's a one-stop shop, and I hope you drop by. Tagging along that, you know, being the United States where such a capitalist country, there was one time we actually had a patient, you know, given they work in cardiology where they knew they were having a heart attack and they held on to it until they, they, they went to a European country. So the fears are lower. Like, where do you oh. hear that, right? And so I wanted to segue that into in our final topics that, you know, definitely in all of these talks about underserved communities and healthcare access inadequacy or impossibility even in many territories yeah. it's definitely a federal responsibility to this right there's definitely a governmental yeah. policies that needs to be in place when it comes to medication access the price of insulin you know stuff like these all this logistics definitely you know federal but also within just the healthcare system itself within us um i think a huge 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 huge, huge problem is also the lack of workers in underserved communities right the lack yeah. of healthcare workers which obviously can still be tied to federal problems but you know just just looking in the nitty-gritty of stuff just in the bird's eye view of, of this concept of you know short staffing and you know we just don't have healthcare workers in underserved communities as you can probably attest to being a physician mm-hmm. in an underserved community how do we fix this problem yeah. um how do we encourage what would be your message i would say to yeah. healthcare workers to come in service into underserved communities in a world where the glory and the light may be more on surgical specialties and private companies and you know financial aspects obviously a very personal yeah. the true thing for all of us right and the gap between pay between surgical and you know private companies is there is also disparity in that in underserved yeah. communities taking all of that into light as a physician in an underserved community, how do we encourage people to enter service into these populations? Yeah, I'm so glad you've asked that. And yes, it is very true that even though we have so, you know, on the outside, the US, we're so resource rich and we have the best of the best facilities and research and all that, yeah. that is not equally distributed at <laughs> all, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, the discrepancy between the haves and the have nots is pretty staggering. So honestly, now that I am in a underserved community and having done so much of my training in these big city academic centers, I feel like more pre-medical, not even like medical school, more pre-medical programs and medical school programs should have these sort of tie-ups and, you know, start having programs mm-hmm. where we send our students to some of these more remote locations. Mm-hmm. 
because that will be the formative experience that first of all will be will give you so much learning right yeah. it will take you out of your bubble you're going to experience life in a whole other community and that's how honestly i have grown so much even just as a person mm-hmm. right yeah. so in in medical school especially in fourth in the last year of med school there are many months and many sort of opportunities to have electives in you know a, a slightly more interior or inland part of whichever state mm-hmm. you're in where you know even you as the student you can reach out to your medical school and just ask that hey like can i do a rotation here like yeah. let's see how we can how we can do that Yeah. and then to even extend that into training right so during residency and during icu training and that could be a little potentially a little bit tricky based on the curriculum and all of that but if you have the will to do that you know you you can figure that out yeah i i also feel like going back to the medical school curriculum i remember having like three courses in medical ethics which i felt was not necessary <laughs> to be honest like we don't need three courses in ethics we yeah. need courses more in public health mm-hmm. especially about social determinants of health yeah. because it is so intricately related to the healthcare that we provide our mm-hmm. patient outcomes you know mm-hmm. these things that we are involved in daily so mm-hmm. i do feel like we do need a little bit more formal education about the reality of healthcare yeah. Yeah. even the financial aspects of it as yeah. you know confusing yeah. as it can be yeah. it's important for us to be exposed to i mean i mean honestly i feel like working in a medically underserved area now is sort of the education that i'm getting that i missed out on Yeah. you know that i didn't have when like i was medical school there. block that you never had right. <laughs> right right but i feel like if we introduce that early on it's just going to shape more of our students mind and our trainees you know our our future healthcare workers really to think about pathways to think about careers that are not just isolated to like a big academic center or a private practice yeah. right there's absolutely nothing wrong with working yeah. in those settings it's very aspirational but there is a whole other not just career but also an opportunity really to make such a meaningful contribution mm-hmm. to a whole community yeah. of people yeah. you yeah. know Definitely. so if that is one thing that i can use to incentivize people to come into into healthcare in in more yeah. underserved areas that would be one and one more thing that i would just like to mention in the olden days we used to have this very like sort of hierarchical relationship between you know the physician and patients or even yeah. physician and under staff yeah. and while i don't feel like there should be that sort of like power imbalance I do feel like having worked as a physician and a trainee in, you know, bigger academic hospitals, sometimes that relationship between a physician and a patient or patient's family can feel a bit transactional, right? Versus in the hospital that I've worked in as an attending now, you know, just the level of reverence and the gratitude that people yeah. have for yeah. your work and for yeah. your contributions. Mm-hmm. that that just makes you feel very valuable yeah right and it energizes you further to continue to work and to and to continue to provide value yeah yeah um that's that was just very heartwarming to see yeah yeah definitely i mean such a capitalist country you know even healthcare has truly become a business and the games of administration right and you know it's i, I guess it's very humbling and uh, very eye opening to see communities like you sir right where right. you see everything is really about like patients like need help like mm-hmm. 
they require the help because their life depends on it and they don't have the resources to do so. And tying all of that together and, and, and to close it up to, I, I guess, going to work, uh, you see all of these, you know, behind every child and every parent that that you see on the bed or in the chair and that you talk to, there's such a story behind them, right? And mm-hmm. we talked about all these barriers that they have. I mean, being in a medically underserved area, there are barriers. It's very much yeah. so real for your patients. And I don't know, where is the nearest grocery store? Can they afford a grocery store? Can they afford their mm-hmm. next medications? Do they even know they need medications because do they know mm-hmm. what they need help in? I cannot imagine as the physician, you know, it's like an oath to help people and to hopefully preserve the lives of people and to offer mm-hmm. the best quality of care to others, right? In the land and in a sphere where resources may be lacking. And I can't imagine that internal dilemma and that what they call like, you know, that moral injury um, yeah. of how much care you want to give, but how much care can we actually give in this, in, in this aspect of resources? How do you separate your personal emotions from that? And I guess that ties on to the question is how do you decompress from work out of all this? Because I can't imagine, you know, not just the physical toll as a physician, but the mental and emotional toll as a physician absolutely. working in medically underserved community. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad, you know, you're asking this because it's also acknowledging the fact that as healthcare workers, you know, we, we also experience everything emotionally, just yeah. like any other human being would, right? Yeah. That we are not devoid of feeling, um, you yeah. know, a patient suffering. And while, of course, I can never imagine what it is to lose your child mm-hmm. or, you know, to have a family member die, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the hospital. As, as part of the healthcare team, you know, I am also grieving with you. You know, I'm, I'm also... Uh, you know, feeling all the emotions that one does, you know, when someone is suffering. And, you know, sometimes it can, again, feel very, very frustrating when Mm -hmm. a, you know, certain outcome happened because, um, you know, either death or just a really bad uh, complication that could have been prevented, you know, so be that from like head injury or be mm-hmm. be that from again severe neglect or mm-hmm. something it 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 can be really really devastating right to everyone in the healthcare team yeah. so i remember one of my mentors actually in 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 icu training telling me this because there was a part <laughs> there was a time in my training when there were so many deaths happening at every time that i was on service um that it was making me feel very disillusioned right mm-hmm. And she was telling me that actually what you're feeling is sort of, it's, it's, it's very real and it's very valid that any and every death, no death of a person or no bad patient outcome should ever make you feel just jaded or should leave you feel unfazed. And what I've also realized, of course, after the initial, you know, process of feeling low or down or even feeling grief you know we feel grief when we are at the workplace right I've then sort of learned how to channel a lot of those emotions into what I can do in an actionable way right so a big part of that is even processing these emotions is even talking about it like we are doing right now right and is kind of destigmatizing the fact that we don't have to have these big walls of exterior to to be yeah. able to function or to be able to be a good you know physician um, mm-hmm. or whatever so how do i decompress i think 
a big part of it is like if i am feeling something to let myself feel all of it mm. um you know to to use tools like i i like to write sometimes when i want to get things out you know and journal or sometimes i'll be out in nature because it feels very meditative to kind of just yeah. be outside yeah i grew up with a lot of like creative arts like mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. and poetry etc so th- these are things that have always given me so much joy and they've made, made me feel more whole they've also made me realize that ultimately like there is more to my life or there is more to our lives than just this one you know unfortunate thing yeah and i feel like it's it's extremely important for all of us to take care of yourselves right for you to take care of yourself because that's that's how we can continue to show up and and do more for you know our community you know people that that we care about yeah. so i want to ask you this too like how do you decompress how do you take care of yourself i eat <laughs> i i love food yeah. I, i i used to have a very well um not too long ago it, it was a a very complicated relationship with food and there was a time mm-hmm. i really enjoyed every food and and i think you know being on social media and being in this generation you know um but at the same time it's like i love enjoying different tastes and different cuisines so i think that's yeah. the way that i get to compress i i love watching the shows that make me think and mm-hmm. and i think i love listening to like very calming music like mm. beautiful instrumentals yeah. i mean stuff classical music stuff like that and i love to dance so you know i mean, I, i think i think those are things that help me also like separate yeah. myself from a mind of work. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's great. See, that's that's really wonderful and again, it's so important to sort of it's like making your that inner child feel seen, yeah. right? Yeah. And and making us like our inner child happy. So that's yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. You, you radiate so much light. It's like brighter than my ring light here. Like I I can just tell how much you love being a physician and being a physician to these many communities who who need you you know it's mm-hmm. like like what i was saying when you we were starting right i was recently scheduling my annual screening you know my annual eye screening my dental cleaning you know mm-hmm. it's like these things that are quote unquote like your responsibility to yourself right which is i think is a luxury you know the fact Absolutely. that we're able to think that oh I should get this done so I will or I need to get this. Mm-hmm. for many people it's like they have like immediate and urgent pain and concerns but they don't have the means to get it addressed right yeah. and so thank you so much for all of the beautiful work that you do I am such a fan and you are such an inspiration to me thank you so much for joining oh, me oh thank you thank you so much for having me i loved having this conversation with you yeah. and i'm so excited for you and your personal journey uh, thank you so much thank you and this is not the last time that we will have a conversation there's so yeah. much more to talk about and absolutely thank you so much dog <laughs> have a great rest of the day you too uh, take care okay, bye We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guests, their work, and why they do the things that they do. 
please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer, turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories, and give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris Franz. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding. Someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody.